There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Artificial intelligence is all the rage at the moment. Elon Musk, Steve Wozniak and Andrew Yang were among those who co-signed a letter recently calling for a six-month minimum moratorium on the development of new AI, full of fears that uh, a super intelligent algorithm is going to somehow take over the world and render human beings obsolete. It's a very important topic and one that is grabbing the commentariat. So we've brought together today our head of tech here at the Centre for Policy Studies, Matthew Feeney, to talk us through it, along with our deputy editor, Alice Denby. Alice, hello, welcome. Hello. Matthew, welcome back to the podcast. This is your second appearance. Great to have you with us. Obviously, we're talking a hell of a lot about AI at the moment, particularly on social media, about potential for it, all the kind of tricks that it can already do, things like chat, GPT, four, which is the latest iteration. There's a lot of very kind of hyperbolic, catastrophic language used about this technology. But I think it would be interesting to just go back a little bit in time and talk about how artificial intelligence has evolved, how quickly things have developed in the last few years as opposed to what preceded it. So, I mean, this goes way back to sort of the 1940s and 1950s, doesn't it? Um, Certainly as an academic field, it does. But the idea of Automated tools arguably goes back thousands. You know, Aristotle wrote and you know the politics about what we wouldn't need um, slaves or servants if tools could work by themselves. In fiction, obviously, I mean there are a plethora of examples in film, but also, I mean, arguably you could think of Frankenstein's monster as a form of like using nature or machines to your advantage. I think as a field, though, as artificial intelligence, as some sort of academic field, you can point to a workshop in Dartmouth in 1956, which brought together a bunch of mathematicians. This is the American Dartmouth, presumably, the East yes, Coast. Yes, yeah. the um, university in New Hampshire. The birth there was at a workshop that included a bunch of uh, mathematicians and others thinking about what became this burgeoning field that is now part of everyday language. Of course, there, there were mathematicians before this workshop, most famously Alan Turing, the um, English mathematician, has a famous thought experiment, the Turing test named after him. So it's fair to say that people have been thinking about this sort of thing for a long, long time, but it's only in the last century that it became an actual academic field with applications, departments, research, that sort of thing. My sense, just as looking from the outside in, is that the last couple of years in particular, it seems to have accelerated. Is that 
fair? I mean, what's the kind of curve of development look like here? Yeah, it's a good question because it hasn't always progressed uh, linearly or exponentially. Uh, the history of AI is dotted with a couple of AI winters where research dried up or there wasn't much funding or, or researchers hit brick walls. But I think it's fair to say in the last few years that there have been you know, leaps and bounds that people are talking a lot about. The large language models that buttress tools like ChatGPT and others are the best known examples. But there have also been advances in things like the AI behind autonomous vehicles, as well as the work at labs like DeepMind, which are working on protein folding and machine learning. It feels kind of as an observer, like this has kind of come from nowhere and people aren't ready for it. And this is why there's so much kind of fear mongering about it. But I suppose in the tech world, this is something that people have been preparing for, or at least working on for a long time. It's, it's not come out of nowhere. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that there's certainly been academic professional work on AI ethics or alignment and worrying about you know the emergence of the kind of machines that um, thrill cinema goers with films like The Matrix or Terminator. If you work on technology policy, you look at the current commentary and you think, well, this is a little too late because AI is everywhere. So talking about AI policy or AI ethics is now similar, it seems to me, to talking about electricity ethics. Electricity is used to maintain nuclear weapons, but it's used for torches and it's used for heating. It's just in everything. Because AI is part of navigation tools, smart assistance, it's part of almost every feature of life now. What I think is interesting is why is it now becoming such a prominent part of modern commentary that people like Elon Musk and all these other people feel like they need to put a pause on it? That is interesting. Do you think that's because this ChatGPT particular technology has now emerged and does seem to be doing pretty extraordinary things? Is it because the technology has advanced so quickly or is it because everyone else was asleep while this was happening? I think it's because for a lot of people is that chat GPT, for lack of another word, is just kind of creepy. Yeah. Uh, and that people don't think too much about or don't find it objectionable that you could throw a lot of maps or navigation data to a computer and it will come up with something like Google Maps or Apple Maps or right. whatever. And you're like, oh, that's a good application. Or, or throw weather satellite data at a computer and it will tell you if it's going to rain. But people don't like the kind of human sounding features of these language models. Um, and I think that's a lot to do with it. We're humans and we think we're really special. And I'm not denying we are, but this sounds more and more like something that could be replacing particular kinds of jobs that we haven't really thought about. And there's also this fear that it will run away with itself and um, turn itself into a monster. And those are the sort of concerns that are worrying people. What have you been most surprised at with the latest iterations of artificial intelligence? We see a lot of kind of people doing kind of tricks with it. Like it's become a bit of a cliche on Twitter to say, I got ChatGPT to do this, that or the other. Mm -hmm. But what do you think is there that's most extraordinary that you've seen? That's a good question. I mean, there are certainly things that are surprising, but not particularly extraordinary. Like that, like every other technology, there are surprising applications when the populace get a hold of it. Like gamers using ChatGPT to run Dungeons and Dragons games, right? Or people asking it to be creative with whether it's poetry or or writing prompts or using it to help with legal briefings. I'm I've been pleasantly surprised at the wide range of applications of it all. What I think is different is that this particular piece of technology, if it doesn't know, we'll kind of just have a guess. 
Um, and there's, which makes it potentially, I think, worrying for a lot of people with concerns about the spread of disinformation, misinformation, which is that ChatGPT, unlike Google, won't say, hey, no results. It'll just have a go. And there's also worries that um, foreign adversaries could use something like this to interfere with elections or, or stoke political dissent in other countries. So that's something worth keeping an eye on. But as I've argued in the pages of CapEx, it's not necessarily um, an argument for a pause, it seems to me. Another thing you mentioned in, you wrote a piece for us a couple of weeks ago about, about this moratorium idea, this letter from Elon Musk is probably the most famous signatory, but there are 1,800 yeah, people yeah. have signed it now. One of the concerns is also mass unemployment. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what kind of jobs is AI a, already replacing them? Do you think it's likely to replace in the future? On the future, I think we all have to take a certain um, dose of humility and just say, look, we don't really know. If you'd asked a farmer in 1850, what will your great-great-great-great-grandchildren be doing in 2023, they wouldn't even have the vocabulary to answer the question accurately, because there were no such things as web developers or systems engineers or these sorts of things, or computers, let alone the internet. Um, They just wouldn't know how to answer the question. The history of technology is one of shifting comparative advantages in good jobs, right? So if you were in the 1850s, you know, this is a time where the vast majority of people are employed in agriculture, where your brain wasn't nearly as useful for most jobs as your physical strength. The Industrial Revolution changed a lot of this. Now, the vast majority of people listening to this podcast have jobs that require them to sit still most of the day and look at a screen. And that is because the skills, the modern economy rewards are very different to what they used to. What does that mean for the future? The answer is we don't know. But in the piece I wrote for CapEx, I've made a few guesses. I do think that people with a lot of STEM degrees um, and other professional degrees should be worried. It's conceivable that in only a handful of years, potentially you could have systems good enough that you know NASA could hire a few computers to say, "Look, could you just design a satellite that's capable of getting itself to Titan and back?" And you know, I'm not saying that we'll get rid of all scientists, but that's the sort of thing. It may be the case that there's a whole industry of trying to teach computers how to sound more human, how to be better human beings. Like I said in the article, I think those jobs which are fundamentally about human connection are probably safe. I doubt anyone's going to be confessing their sins to a robot anytime soon. The history of AI is also um, one of even very well-designed systems going sort of off course and doing things that weren't intended. So there might be people who are just employed to train AI systems to get back on course to do the thing correctly. It's also possible that in this AI future, things that are human-made become more of a status symbol and that there will be a market for things that are human-made. And we actually see an increase in demand for people like Craftsman and you know, think of like Etsy, but times a thousand <laughs> or something like that. Uh, but the answer is we don't know. But I also think even though we don't know, I'm not worried about it, at least not yet. The history of technology is one of um, technology destroying jobs, but also creating jobs. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yeah, I think one of the things that I found quite frustrating about the whole AI discourse is when people say it's going to replace human creativity. You talked about people getting the AI to write poetry. I mean, if you read this stuff, it's absolute drivel. I feel like there's a kind of category error here in a difference between asking the AI to try and do human things and getting it to do things that are useful for an AI to do. I don't know if you have an insight into that. I think it's unlikely that AI is going to kill human creativity. I do think the history of creative arts is one where creative artistic people become very good at seizing new technology. In film, people have, you know, it's a sort of tired thing about, oh, well, computer graphics are just ruining film and special effects are terrible. And, and I just think most of that is just nonsense. Uh, I think things like Photoshop and film editing software have made photography and film more interesting. I think it's probable you'll see more AI prompting or helping along the process. Like I mentioned, you know, gaming might be one place you see a lot of this. I think the fact is that we still, a part of what we appreciate about art is knowing that another human being was involved in it. Mm. I would be happy to go to the cinema to watch a film written, directed, and acted by AI, but I think it would be a fundamentally different thing to than seeing a human being made subject, right? So I think AI is going to get better at this sort of stuff, but I don't think it's going to get rid of the demand for human creativity. It strikes me that the key difference here is between what we've been discussing, which is artificial intelligence and artificial general mm-hmm. intelligence, mm-hmm. or some people call it a super intelligence. Mm-hmm. And this is when it, some people say it's when it becomes self-aware. Is that a useful way of putting it, do you think, Paul? Definitions vary. Um, so at the moment, what you're referring to is um, a as yet hypothetical intelligence, which succeeds human intelligence um, or is at equal to it. And this is to distinguish it from what we have now. It's important to point out that AI is already much better at humans than some things. Um, chess, to Alice's earlier point, by the way, that hasn't stopped people being interested in playing chess or playing mm-hmm. Go. They didn't just pack up and be like, well, I guess computer solved it. But although they're superhuman in that, we have yet to come up with a computer that can wake up, make itself coffee, play a game of chess, and then read BBC News, come up with that, think about what a good um, activity for their kids might be. This sort of general intelligence to have like many different avenues for creativity and creation all at the same time, they're working on it. Um, And uh, Microsoft researchers um, talk about having glimmers of this in chat GPT, which I think is just a fancy way of saying that chat GPT is really good at looking like it's this sort of thing. The history of polling of computer science researchers on this just reveals that the community that spends a lot of time thinking about this has been wildly wrong in its predictions about when this will emerge, or even if it's possible that such a thing could emerge. There's um, Herbert Simon, the Nobel Prize winner, was at this Dartmouth workshop we mentioned earlier, said in 1960, look, in 20 years, there'll be no need for humans in any job. 
you know, he wasn't stupid. Uh, it's just that there is a bias towards fear and uncertainty. And also there's a lot of philosophical heavy lifting that I think needs to happen. If you came into my office and said, oh, Matthew, you know, we've created a sentient machine, my first obvious question would be, how do you know that? And then, you know, look, many philosophy undergrads have taken lectures about this sort of thing. The fact that this is something people are worrying about is, I think, why we shouldn't necessarily pause our AI research, because I want there to be collaboration and transparency in the academic community and the research community working on this. And I don't want our foreign adversaries to say, well, a bunch of worried people in, in Europe and North America are putting a pause, so we'll just keep going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was going to be my question. Like, I don't think a pause on ideas is practically achievable. If we don't do it, our adversaries may. I mean, you look at things like the Chinese guy who genetically engineered babies to be immune to HIV. It's like people are going to do this stuff and you're going to have rogue actors doing it like him if we don't do it ourselves, basically. The Chinese will not stop investing in AI and hiring people who are good at it. I think oftentimes people in North America and, and Europe um, shoot themselves in the foot by educating a lot of people from less free countries in computer science and AI and then sending them back home. If you want a safe AI space, I think we do need a global community to at least keep an eye on each other. Just in terms of the nuts and bolts of developing an algorithm, I don't know what you would call it, an AI seems a very vague way of putting it. How much kind of computing power do you need? Are there only certain types of big organizations that can actually do this? It's not the kind of thing that someone sitting at home with a computer can just come up with. It's a question of definition. Um, it wouldn't be that expensive for you or me to come up with a, an AI that can win tic-tac-toe or at least right. draw every human, right? You should not be worried about a 25-year-old in his um, bed sit building something that could turn into the Matrix robot, right? I mean, these um, sort of machines um, require a lot of data to learn from. And that is just literal physical infrastructure. You need a lot of servers. You need to keep them maintained. That costs electricity. I mean, so it's expensive. You know, Jeremy Hunt in the most recent budget was announcing the purchase of a supercomputer. And I think it was in the hundreds of millions of pounds. Yeah. And it is super. I mean, they measure these things in calculations per second. So most humans could do six plus four in under a second. This supercomputer that we're apparently purchasing can do 30 trillion equivalent calculations per second. So, you know, that's a lot of computing power. So yeah, it's not cheap. But the fact is, I think there are governments all over the world that are willing to invest in it because they see advantages in not just national security applications, but also in infrastructure and education and in all kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot. I think, as Alice said, I think a lot of the discourse is very negative and kind of weighted to... And I kind of get that if the tail risk is going to be kind of the destruction of humanity, yeah. then you want to lean into that. But what do you see as the most exciting parts of what this technology can do for us? I think on medicine and transport and all these things, I think it's going to be fantastic. You know, what DeepMind can do with protein folding. I love the possibility of getting systems like this just working on cancer, working on vaccines, working on um, all kinds of problems. The potential to have these machines figuring out ways to improve jet engines, to improve space flight, to keep an eye on the best you know, infrastructure for cities. I mean, the possibilities are really interesting and fascinating. There are potential costs, of course, where we've, we've mentioned jobs, but I think we do need to keep fiction to one side. Uh, people, I think, often <laughs> seem to forget that, that good stories require a conflict. Human beings create a great machine and it helps us all and we all live healthier, longer lives. It's not a story that's going to get people into the cinema, right? You need to have a problem. So no, I, I remain an optimist um, without trying to be too dismissive of the potential risks. What do you make of, I think it's William McCaskill's argument that given that 
even if it is a tiny risk that AIs, you know, wipe out all humanity, that is still worth worrying about and in researching in the now because of the potential risk, you know, to future generations. Without reading the argument, it reminds me of that there was a story about it during the Manhattan Project that someone, I forget which one oh, of the scientists it was, yeah, said, off, look, yeah. there's a non-zero chance we'll just ignite the entire atmosphere of the Earth when we test this nuclear bomb. If I recall correctly, there were discussions and they thought, eh, you know, it's, is it one in a million chance or 5% chance? And they eventually were like, eh, you know, uh, we'll have a go. I'm not saying that we should just have a sort of flippant or have a go for anything, but I think you do need strong evidence that we are truly dealing with something catastrophic, where the risk is actually the destruction or extinction of our species. And that, I think, you need to do a really heavy lift to convince me of that. Why is there this assumption that if, and we've discussed how it's still a big if, a machine or whatever came into being, that it would want to destroy us? I feel like a lot of this owes itself to Nick Bostrom's paper clips. Well, that all has to do with, it depends what it wants to do. And again, we're in this weird philosophical world of machines wanting things. But this, the idea is we could create something very powerful, give it a good kind of goal, and it just all goes wrong. The paperclips of, you know, just have a machine that makes paperclips, but then it realizes it can turn human beings into human beings are made of atoms. We could just turn planets into paperclips, that, that sort of thing. I mean, Bostrom also has this example of tell a machine to make everyone happy, and it measures happiness by smiles, so it just captures us all and hooks us up to machines that force us to smile. It is a real problem that you can give machines goals, and then it will find creative and unexpected ways to fulfill the goal. One of my favorite examples of this was a simple theoretic machine that was just programmed to stack Lego bricks in a machine. And the victory condition was, you know, when the bottom of one block aligns with the top of another, you get a sort of prize. And so the machine's trying to do that. It was unexpected, but the researchers turned this on. And one of the first things the machine did was just flip a Lego block upside down, which satisfied the condition of getting the bottom of one aligned with the top. But this is why I'm not too worried, because I feel as if everyone who thinks about AI for a living knows about this and is, is working on this aligning AI with our goals and values. I don't think, by the way, it's as simple. A lot of people might say it'll be easier to turn it off. Well, depends <laughs> what kind of machine it is and where it is. And it's possible for if you could create something quite smart that it would distribute itself, that any sentient smart machine would know that there are these debates out because it's read all the literature. And so we'll think, you know, it probably is worth copying myself a few hundred times and shushing and not telling the humans about it. Yeah, it's a question of alignment and people are working on it. Is there a question of kind of interconnectivity here as well in terms of, we talk about, for example, if it's going to, one of the doomsday scenarios is it somehow hacks nuclear weapons system or, or something like that. I mean, are there ways you can put in kind of firewalls or are we then dealing with something that is so beyond our own mental capabilities that it's hard to... Um, there are. The problem is, like every other technology, it can be used for offensive and defensive means. We undoubtedly know that our foreign adversaries are investing in AI to aid their military capabilities, to aid their intelligence gathering, and that they would be very keen for tools that would make it harder for us to deploy drones, like use spy satellites and all these other sorts of things. But the answer to that, I think, is we need to have our own good AI. Cybersecurity and foreign policy are sort of beyond my remit, but, but I'm sure that anyone who works on our nuclear arsenal, I'd be surprised if anyone was saying, yeah, we just need to abandon AI and figure out a Cold War way of doing this. I suppose that is a way you could just say, like, the only way to turn them on is through old telephones and right, there's yeah. no, no yeah, physically yeah. disconnect nuclear weapons that way. I think that would be unwise. One thing that I'm interested in is how 
advanced, we talk a lot about algorithms and computing and things, but how advanced is the actual robotics? So if we were talking about a machine that can both think and move and physically execute on its thoughts, how, I mean, how far are we from that? It's sort of similar to what I said earlier, where robots are very good at discrete tasks. The robots in car factories can lift things that are very, very heavy, um, can put things, put doors onto cars. Robots, though, there isn't much demand for a kind of general purpose human-like robot yet. There's not the kind of human intelligence you could plug it in to make it useful. You know, if you want a robot to pick corn, it doesn't need five, ten fingers. It doesn't need um, to be able to jog. It doesn't need to be able to sit down and hold a newspaper, right? My understanding is for on YouTube, it makes the rounds all the time. This Boston Dynamics, you know, dog or their humanoid looking robot. I could be wrong, and I hope listeners will email me to correct me, but my understanding is, is that that robot is not navigating space sort of by itself. Like it's, it's programmed to know what to expect. And that is a huge challenge is, you know, can you grab a robot, put it into a desert, put it into a jungle, put it onto a pavement, and it will, similar to a human being, still be able to walk and to crawl and to look up and down and figure out where it is. So part of the reason I think we don't have really good humanoid robots is it's not clear to me what the application would be. And also it's expensive. So I remember, I think it was in Japan, someone did try to create a hotel that was staffed entirely by robots. Mm. And it lasted about three months or something. Because they just, I don't know exactly what happened, but I think like they kept breaking. And it was just impossible. You do actually need humans for human facing stuff most of the time. Look, our physical bodies are the product of billions of years of evolution that are very fine-tuned to our environment. And so replicating that with wire and metal is not impossible, but it's going to be really hard to do. Mostly because a lot of the movements um, just happen by instinct. And I forget the exact calculation, but people talking about the number of calculations involved in just walking along a pavement with, you know, the balance, eyesight, you know, here, it's incredible. Well, I think that's made me feel a bit more optimistic about our AI-enabled future. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. To all our listeners, I would highly recommend reading Matthew's pieces on CapEx, particularly about this topic, artificial intelligence. Thank you all as ever at home for listening. Thank you, Alice. Thank you, Matthew, for joining us. And please do tune in next Friday for another episode of the CapEx podcast. (laughs) 